0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Before we begin, you might notice that my voice sounds a little different today. I've had laryngitis for about a week, and I had no voice at all for about five days. Just one of the many hazards of being a podcaster, I guess. But as they say, the show must go on. So please forgive some frogginess on my part, and maybe a few extra pauses as I sip some hot water with lemon to keep going. Thanks for your understanding. Without further ado, here's episode 275. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. One highlight of the month of March is St. Patrick's Day. St. Paddy's Day makes me think of the saying, the luck of the Irish. Well, I'm not Irish, so I don't know what all that's about. But if you are, well then, you may just consider yourself lucky. This month, I'll be covering cases of people who, I guess you could say, might consider themselves lucky. But as the circumstances they were subjected to, and yet survived, are horrific true crime tales, I had to think of a title to reflect this fact. So, this month's series is titled The Devil's Luck Stories of People Who Escaped Serial Killers and Mass Murderers. These are truly miraculous survivor stories, but also not for the faint of heart. First up, a family dream vacation turns into a nightmare on the sea. All seems lost when the ship sinks with all on board. But by some miracle, a sole survivor is found. The story she tells about what happened on board the Bluebell will horrify all who hear it. Terry Joe Duperalt grew up in a family of adventurers. She was raised to be curious, unafraid, and strong willed. It served her well and very likely saved her life. Terry Joe's father, Arthur Duperalt, was born on March 7, 1921, in Green Bay, Wisconsin. He would plant his family roots in that Midwestern state, but always a dreamer and an adventurer. Arthur would first venture out into the world. Arthur Duperalt seemed to be good at whatever he set his mind to. Although he was smaller in stature, his personality and energy were larger than life. Popular for his positive attitude and cheerful disposition, he became class president at Green Bay West High School and champion of the debate team. He enrolled in college in Appleton, Wisconsin in 1940, but when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor in December 1941, and the U.S. entered the war, Arthur left school to enlist in the Navy. He was trained as a medical corpsman and stationed in the jungles of Burma, attending to the sick and wounded. During his time in the Navy, he fell in love with the sea and dreamed of one day sailing around the world. After the war ended, Arthur was assigned to work at the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. It was there in 1944 that he met Jean Broche. Jean was also a Midwesterner, raised in Nebraska. Smart, athletic, and pretty, Jean was employed in the secretarial pool at FBI headquarters when she caught the eye of 23-year-old Arthur. He fell head over heels for her, and they married just a few months later. Arthur returned to school to study optometry in Chicago. The couple's first son, Brian, was born in 1947, and Arthur graduated from college two years later. He moved his family to his home state of Wisconsin and opened up an optometry practice in Green Bay. The Duperault's first daughter, Terry Jo, was born soon after in 1950. The baby of the family, another daughter they named Renee, was born four years later. Arthur's optometry practice thrived after he became one of the first in the area to begin fitting his patients with contact lenses, which were becoming widely available to the public for the first time. Dr. Duperault was a well-regarded professional in the Green Bay community, but he was admired even more for his wonderful family values. For Arthur and Jean Duperault, family was everything, and their children meant the world to them. The Duperaults were living the American dream, but Arthur still had one more dream. He had never forgotten how much he loved being at sea. He'd raised his children to love the outdoors as he did. Their home was situated on an acre of wooded land near the countryside, so the Duperault children enjoyed playing outside in nature. Arthur's wish was for his family to experience life at sea. He dreamed the day he could make this dream a reality. Brian was the spitting image of his father, but blonde like his mom, as were all the Duperalt children. Brian was athletic like his dad. His younger sister, Terry Jo, was the tallest in the family. She would tower over her older brother by the time she was ten years old. The youngest, Renee, was dainty and fair. She preferred dolls and tea parties over playing in the woods, but was a good sport nevertheless and enjoyed being included in her older siblings' games. The most adventurous of the Duperalt children was Terry Jo, by far. Labeled a tomboy by her family, she embraced this description with pride. Terry Jo's favorite fictional character was Tarzan, and she used the woods surrounding her home as her fantasy jungle playground. She tied ropes to tree branches to act as vines, which she swung on from tree to tree. She even created a Tarzan costume for herself by using the skins of dead rabbits and squirrels she found in the woods. She sewed them onto an old bathing suit to create a loincloth to wear. Terry Joe was a daddy's girl. Her father was her hero, and she loved listening to his tales of his travels while in the Navy. She followed him wherever he went. Arthur took Terry Joe to the lake and taught her to fish. Terry Joe loved all water sports and was a strong swimmer. In 1961, Arthur turned 40. Brian, his oldest child, was 14. Arthur felt that time was growing short if he wanted to make his dreams of sailing with his family a reality. So in October of 1961, Arthur and Jean Duperault decided to test the waters, as it were, by booking an ocean voyage with the children. They chartered a boat out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida for a seven-day cruise through the Bahamas. The Bluebell, a 60-foot twin-masted sailing catch, was to be captained by a 44-year-old, named Julian Harvey. On paper, Julian Harvey looked like a winner. Born in 1917 in New York, Harvey was raised in the town of Scarsdale, one of the wealthiest communities in the country. Harvey's parents divorced when he was just five years old, and he and his younger sister were raised by a wealthy aunt and uncle. As a result, he lived a privileged life, even during the Great Depression. Julian Harvey always had an easy charm about him. Good-looking, athletic, and confident by nature, he was popular with girls and would always have an eye for the ladies. But Julian's problem was that he was very fickle when it came to romance, in love one minute before he quickly grew bored, and moved on to his next romantic interest. His good looks made it easy to attract women, And of course, the money helped. He enjoyed playing the eligible bachelor, who was always impeccably and expensively dressed, and who drove the newest luxury automobiles. He even worked briefly as a model for the John Roberts Powers Agency. Still, you have to give Harvey credit. He could have lived an easy life as an eligible playboy, but instead, he enlisted in the military to serve his country. But even in this worthy endeavor, he was strategic in his thinking. In 1940, the United States instituted the Selective Training and Service Act, which required all men between the ages of 21 and 45 to register for the draft. In 1941, 24-year-old Julian Harvey enlisted in the U.S. Army Air Corps as an air cadet before he could be drafted as a grunt or low-ranking soldier. Harvey always saw himself as special and set apart from others and would chase glory and status all his life. He got his first shot to be a hero when he was commissioned as a second lieutenant and assigned to fly B-24 bombers. During wartime, he flew a total of 29 combat missions and 114 fighter missions in Korea. By the time he was medically discharged with the rank of major in 1958, Harvey had earned multiple awards for his service, including an Air Medal with eight Oak Leaf Clusters, one Silver and three Bronze, the Distinguished Flying Cross, a World War II Victory Medal, and a European-African Middle Eastern campaign medal with one bronze star. Julian Harvey looked good on paper. What do I mean by that? Well, even with all his earned medals and honors, Harvey was always considered accident-prone by his superiors. He was involved in more crashes than normal for this skilled position. His peers in the military noted Harvey's propensity to lose his nerve and ditch missions regularly. He would most often cite engine failure, as a cause of these aborted missions. Harvey, even as a youth, had exhibited a facial tick and a stutter while under stress. By the end of his military career, they had grown worse. Some attributed this as a sign that his nerves were shot. Still, after leaving the service, he was able to portray himself as a war hero, and even spun his military record into a lucrative career as a test pilot and a jet fighter pilot. In total, Julian Harvey would marry six times. He was still in high school when he wed and divorced his first wife. He met his second wife at a function for Army officers. She was a wealthy 17-year-old debutante whom he quickly married. She gave birth to a son, Julian Jr., shortly before Harvey returned to the States in 1944. Soon after they reunited, he told his teen bride he wanted a divorce. The child remained with his mother, and Harvey didn't continue this relationship with his son. Not much time passed, before he met and married Joanne Boylan, a 21-year-old socialite. He was 10 years her senior. In 1948, the couple had a son they named Lance. Julian and Joanne's marriage was rocky from the start, mostly due to his numerous affairs. They fought bitterly about his infidelity. His third marriage ended not in divorce, but in tragedy. In 1949, Julian was driving a car that skidded off the road and into a river. Both of his passengers, his wife Joanne and her mother, drowned when the car crashed into the water and was submerged. Julian miraculously escaped. Bystanders who'd heard the crash rushed to the scene and attempted to dive in and save the women. They and the officers who soon arrived were astonished at Harvey's calm demeanor in the face of this tragedy. He calmly explained, in a boastful manner according to one witness, how he'd managed to escape the out-of-control vehicle while it was still in midair. Investigators smelled something fishy from the start. They believed it was not possible that Harvey walked away unscathed unless he'd planned the accident. However, they were unable to prove it, and he not only avoided responsibility for the crash, but also collected a large life insurance payout from the death of his wife. Within weeks of Joanne's death, Harvey was living with another woman. Joanne's father pressed for a more extensive investigation. Harvey was interviewed by a military doctor, Who was an M.D. and not a psychiatrist. The doctor's report described Harvey as a sociopath, incapable of love, addicted to danger, a pathological liar, and a grandiose narcissist. Even with that extraordinary diagnosis, Harvey walked free, and the assessment was not even formally entered into his military file. Just a year later, he married his fourth wife, a Texas businesswoman. This union lasted only four years. Harvey married once again in 1954. His fifth wife divorced him in 1958, citing infidelity and Harvey's out-of-control temper as reasons for wanting out of the marriage. Harvey was what you might call a stuffed shirt, a person who exhibited style but no substance. He loved the limelight and the glory, but avoided commitments and responsibilities. Julian Harvey had grown up with wealth, but this doesn't mean he was wealthy. After leaving the military, He had to find a way to support himself in the lifestyle he was accustomed to. He did this at first by marrying wealthy women. But as a commitment phobe, he soon found himself looking for another meal ticket when each marriage became too real. Did this lead him to plan the death of his third wife? A pattern of insurance claims seems to indicate this might be true. Before Julian Harvey became a pilot, his first love was boats. He loved boating since he was in high school. He often sailed off the Long Island Sound. He had built several boats and sailed them in the years before he enlisted in the military. In the mid-1950s, Harvey purchased a 68-foot yacht called the Torbatross. While sailing with friends on the Chesapeake Bay, he steered it into the remains of a sunken battleship, the Texas. His yacht sunk. He and his passengers escaped, and Harvey collected $14,000 from the U.S. government for the loss of his boat. In 1958, a luxury yacht he owned called the Valiant caught fire and sank while sailing to Havana, Cuba. This time, Harvey collected $40,000 from the insurance company. In both instances, Harvey was suspected of having a hand in the wrecks. Witnesses claimed that he'd steered the Torbatross around the battleship wreck site several times until it finally hit it and sunk his yacht. A friend of Harvey's later stated that Harvey admitted to setting fire to the Valiant himself because he was in financial trouble. This was possibly due to his recent divorce. Harvey spent a good amount of time sailing off the coast of South Florida. It was rumored that he picked up work with underworld figures in illegal trades like drug smuggling and gun running. Harvey met Mary Dean Jordan Smith, a beautiful TWA flight attendant, while passing himself off as a wealthy yachtsman. In reality, Harvey went through money as fast as he made, or scammed it. Mary Dean, who went by Dean, married Harvey in July 1961. She soon found out he was broke and nearly homeless. They fought about this, but in October, he came up with a plan. He had been hired as the captain of a 60-foot yacht called the Bluebell. He and Dean could live on the boat, and he'd be paid about $300 per month to sell chartered voyages to the islands. Without many options and still hoping to make her marriage work, Dean agreed to be his first mate, living and sailing with her husband on the Bluebell. What she didn't know was that just two months after their wedding, her new husband took out a $20,000 double indemnity life insurance policy on her. It would pay out double the amount should Dean die as a result of an accident.
0: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's dot In October 1961,
1: Arthur Duperalt chartered the Bluebell, a 60 foot yacht owned by Harold Pegg, for a week long sea voyage to the Bahamas. The trip was meant as a family vacation for Arthur, his wife Jean, and their three children 14 year old Brian, 11 year old Terry Joe, and seven-year-old Renee. It was also a first run to test out the seaworthiness of his family. Arthur's ultimate goal was to spend a year at sea with his wife and children, sailing from port to port. Arthur and Jean believed this would be a great experience for their kids, who would expand their minds through real world travels. Jean also planned to homeschool them as they traveled. But first, they needed a practice run to make sure everyone was compatible with a seagoing life. The kids were looking forward to the trip, but the most excited of all was Terry Jo. Terry Jo's hero was her father, and anything he loved, she loved. She was also happiest in nature and doing something active and adventurous. While she was a happy child, Terry Jo was also an introvert who preferred books and her animals, two dogs, five cats, and several rabbits, to socializing. She'd have no trouble leaving her schoolmates for a week to sail the open seas with her family, and she couldn't wait to set sail. They were set to depart from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, on November 5th. The yacht was designed to hold five or six passengers and included two sleeping berths, a kitchenette, and a bathroom. There was also a third sleeping area set up aft or in the stern of the boat. There would be seven people aboard for the week-long trip, the family of five, the boat skipper, and his wife. On the morning of November 8, 1961, Arthur Duperault and his family arrived in Fort Lauderdale where the Bluebell was docked. On hand to greet them was the yacht's owner, Harold Pegg. Pegg introduced them to the hired boat captain, Julian Harvey, and his wife, Dean. Dean would serve as the first mate and cook during their time at sea. The Duperaults learned that the couple had only been married a little over three months and the voyage was to serve double duty as their honeymoon the Duperolds had brought along provisions to last a week. As they set up storing them, they familiarized themselves with the layout of the boat. Arthur was back in his element on board the Bluebell. He and Harvey got along fine, and once Harvey learned Arthur was a Navy man and an accomplished sailor, he allowed the doctor to trade off sailing duties with him. The first five days at sea were everything Arthur could have hoped for. He watched his children gain their sea legs quickly and was delighted to see that they loved sailing. The children swam, snorkeled, fished, and played on the beaches at several stops they made along the islands. The wives watched the children chatted and prepared meals together. The women found they had something in common. Dean, like Jean and her family, hailed from Wisconsin. They talked about the cold Midwest winters and what a change South Florida and the islands were from that environment. Everyone enjoyed lounging on deck in the sun and the feel of the ocean breeze. Nights were spent docked resting and recreating on board the yacht. In the evenings, the two couples and the children ate dinner together. The Harveys had drinks most evenings, but Arthur and his wife didn't often partake. Once when the family went ashore at Sandy Point, Dr. Duperalt, whom the locals immediately nicknamed Doc, shared what a wonderful time he and his family were having. He called it the trip of a lifetime and expressed a desire to return to the area and build a vacation home there. He said the family would use Sandy Point as a winter resort. On Sunday, November 12th, the Bluebell left Sandy Point for the planned 200-mile trip back to Fort Lauderdale. They were expected to arrive on Tuesday night the 14th or Wednesday the 15th. This was the first time they would sail at night, and the children were excited. They were allowed to stay up and got comfortable in the cockpit with the adults. The Harveys and Jean and Arthur Duperault sat talking in the cockpit until after dark. Terry Joe headed off alone to her cabin. She got into her bunk around 9 p.m. and quickly fell into a deep sleep. She didn't even have time to change out of her clothes. The following morning, Monday the 13th, a crewman on board the tanker SS Gulf Lion spotted a life raft and dinghy about four miles offshore. He saw the figure of a man in the raft, but at first it appeared that he was making no attempt to signal the ship. The crewman didn't see a boat nearby. He alerted the ship's captain, who turned around and approached the raft. It was then that he saw the man begin to wave his arms. As they drew alongside the raft, the man stated, My name is Julian Harvey. I'm the master of the Bluebell. I have a dead baby on this dinghy. I think her name is Terry Joe Duperol. The man lifted a small sail, and underneath it, they saw the body of a little blonde girl wearing red shorts and a short-sleeved shirt. Harvey had provided the wrong name and mistakenly identified the girl as 11-year-old Terry Joe. In fact, it was 7-year-old Renee. Harvey came aboard the Gulf Lion while a basket was lowered to retrieve the body of the child. Harvey described how the previous evening, just before midnight, the bluebell had been caught in a freak squall. The main mast had snapped by the force of the wind and fallen into the deck puncturing a hole in the hull, he said. The mizzenmast had been pulled down and into the cockpit, rupturing the gas lines below. A fire had broken out on board and quickly spread. Most of the passengers had been in the cockpit and were injured by the fallen masts and rigging, Harvey said. He'd been cut off from the others while attempting to fight the fire, and the boat began sinking swiftly. He'd barely had time to launch the dinghy and raft and dive overboard before the ship went down. Later that night, Harvey said he'd found the body of the little girl floating face down in her life vest. The U.S. Coast Guard was contacted about the wreck. They led an extensive search for the wreckage of the Bluebell or any survivors, but came up empty. Harvey was taken to Nassau, the Bahamas' capital. He gave a formal statement during which he appeared calm and at ease, considering the traumatic event he'd just experienced. When officials commented on this, Harvey said he was sure the emotion of it all would hit him later. He was provided with enough money to return to the States. The following day, he flew to Miami. He contacted the Coast Guard as requested, who informed Harvey he was required to appear on November 16th to attend a formal hearing. He would have to answer for the wreck of the Bluebell, and the presumed demise of all passengers on board. Unbeknownst to Harvey and the Coast Guard, there was a survivor of the Blue Bell. Terry Joe Duparalt had gone alone that night to the small cabin behind the main cabin to sleep. Normally, her little sister Renee also slept there, But tonight, Terry Joe's siblings had stayed in the cockpit on deck with the adults. They had rolled out blankets and settled in instead of going to their bunks. Terry Joe was always the first to go to bed. She was awoken in the middle of the night by footsteps pounding somewhere outside her door. Then she heard a sound that would haunt her for the rest of her days. Her brother Brian was screaming, Help! Daddy! Help! Then all went quiet. She lay still for a few minutes, frozen in place. Slowly, she got up and quietly opened the door and looked into the center cabin. She drew back in horror as she saw blood. It took her a moment to register what she was seeing, as if her brain would not let her comprehend it. The bodies of her mother and brother were lying on their backs in a pool of blood. Terry Jo knew immediately that they were dead. Her fear propelled her forward and up onto the deck, where she saw more blood and what she thought might be a knife lying on the deck. She couldn't see much more in the dark, but suddenly the captain came towards her. His face was twisted in anger and possibly panic. Terry Joe squeaked out, what's happening? He struck her while pushing her roughly back down into the cabin. Get back down there, he yelled. Terry Joe ran back to her bunk and pushed herself as far back into the corner as possible, shivering with cold and fright. She heard pounding and water sloshing around on the deck. It sounded as if the deck was being rinsed down. Was the captain trying to wash away the blood she'd seen? But now she had another problem. Water, mixed with fuel, was beginning to rise in her cabin. She still couldn't bring herself to move off her bunk. She was fearful of encountering her mother and brother's bodies floating in the rising water, or the scary captain. As the water continued to rise, the door to her cabin suddenly flew open. Captain Harvey stood in the doorway. He was just a dark figure in shadow, but she could hear him breathing heavily. He was holding onto something across his chest, but she couldn't make out what it was. She held her breath, terrified of what would happen next. The water was almost up to the top of her bunk now. Without saying anything, Harvey turned and headed back up the stairs to the deck, leaving Terry Jo alone. She knew she had to get out of the cabin if she didn't want to drown. Forcing herself up onto the deck, Terry Jo looked around. The light on top of the mizzenmast allowed her to see that the ship's raft and dinghy had been launched over the side and into the dark ocean below. Captain Harvey stood on deck, looking down at the dinghy. Is the boat sinking? She asked him. He answered, yes, and then thrust a line at her. Here, hold this, he commanded. Terry Joe would later report that at the moment she saw the bodies of her mother and Brian, she experienced a sense of being outside of her own body. Now the unreality of this situation caused her to let the rope slip through her fingers. It was the line tethered to the dinghy. Harvey looked over and in a panicked voice cried out, The dinghy's gone! He quickly jumped overboard and Terry Jo saw him swimming towards the dinghy that was floating away. In the dark she could not see if he reached it. Now Terry Jo, the little girl who loved to play at pretend adventures, was in a real life or death situation. She knew she needed to keep her wits about her if she were to survive. Somehow, she was able to remain calm in the face of tremendous stress. It gave her a moment to think and come up with a plan. She remembered that there was a cork float tied to the right side of the main cabin. It was only about five feet long and two feet wide, and the bottom was merely a series of ropes crossed over each other and affixed to the cork sides. But it was something that might keep her from being dragged down into the sea by the sinking bluebell. She moved to the side of the boat and saw the raft almost floating on the top of the waves. The bluebell was nearly submerged. She untied the raft, stepped inside, and pushed herself far enough away from the bluebell and into the open water. There was one heart-stopping moment when a line from the float caught onto something on the bluebell. It started to be dragged with it, but somehow the line was freed just before the boat was swallowed up by the waves. Terry Joe had survived the boat wreck, but she was now alone in the middle of the dark sea without food, water, or protection from the elements. She was dressed only in pink pants, white wool socks, and a white blouse over a white undershirt. It was nighttime now, and the rain began to fall. A large wave could knock her into the sea, and she'd never be seen again. There were sharks in the ocean, and Terry Jo's legs dangled in the water as she balanced herself on the cork ring with just rope webbing below her. But an even greater danger was just a few hours away. When the sun rose in the morning, Terry Jo would face blistering heat and rapid dehydration, which would mean certain death if she was not found quickly. Julian Harvey was found in the dinghy just hours after the bluebell sank. By Thursday morning, four days after the wreck, he entered the Coast Guard headquarters in Miami to sit for a hearing. He would be questioned by Lieutenant Ernest Murdoch and the Coast Guard Captain Robert Barber, who had been assigned to investigate. They were tasked with determining why the Blue Bell sank and whether Harvey should be held responsible due to incompetence, misconduct, or any violations of the laws as its captain. Harvey's initial account of the accident aboard the Blue Bell met with immediate suspicion by rescuers and investigators. They noted that Harvey had no injuries of any kind, and neither the dinghy, Harvey, nor the body of the little girl showed signs of having escaped a fire. Harvey's demeanor also gave them pause. He seemed strangely unruffled by his ordeal. There was also the fact that he never asked about survivors, not even to inquire about the fate of his new bride. Harvey entered the hearing room sharply dressed and smiling. He told the story virtually identically as he had immediately after his rescue. Now, however, he provided additional details. The freak squall had hit the boat hard, snapping the main mast, which had fallen into the deck and pierced the hull. The force had caused damage to the fuel lines below, causing a fire to break out, Harvey reiterated. As he'd run to retrieve a fire extinguisher, the mizzen mast had also snapped, and wires and cables had whipped around the deck, injuring some of the passengers. He'd been cut off from the others as he'd battled the fire, Harvey said, which had spread quickly. When he realized there was no hope to save the boat, he only had enough time to untie the dinghy and jump overboard before the bluebell went down. Harvey said he'd circled the area for two hours trying to find survivors, but had only found the body of the little girl floating. He said he'd tried to resuscitate her, but was unsuccessful. He told investigators he believed all the others had drowned, although he recalled the children were all wearing life jackets. When asked if he'd attempted to summon help before abandoning the bluebell, Harvey stated that he could not send an SOS signal because the radio was already broken when he had attempted to. He said he had not thought to send up emergency flares. Investigators continued to find Harvey's lack of emotion concerning. Either the man was still in shock or something was very off about him, they thought. His answers were glib, and he frequently displayed a charming smile for investigators. He seemed refreshed and alert as if he'd slept well, even though his wife and passengers were still missing and presumed drowned at sea. In some respect, Harvey even appeared to blame the victims for their fate. When asked about Dr. Arthur Duperalt and his family, Harvey answered that he, quote, didn't have much use for city folk. They get panicky, end quote. Harvey claimed that everyone on board the boat was awake at the time of the accident. He stated that the 11-year-old girl was, quote, screaming, I tried to keep her quiet, she didn't know what was going on, end quote. Side note, in every liar's story, there's always nuggets of truth. The fact that he heard a child screaming that night and tried to shut them up rings true. This may have been Brian, Renee, or both. Investigators also didn't believe that a broken mast could pierce a deck the way Harvey described. They'd also discovered that a lighthouse, just 14 miles away from where the boat accident was reported, had seen no signs of a boat on fire that night. This would have been easily spotted in the dark by the lighthouse operator. The only signs of stress Julian Harvey exhibited while being questioned was an increasingly pronounced stutter, as he was put under more intense scrutiny to explain his answers. He appeared to visibly relax when investigators concluded their questioning. Harold Pegg, the owner of the Bluebell, was the next to be questioned. Just as his interview got underway, Coast Guard Captain Barber, who'd been called out of the room moments earlier, burst in excitedly. A survivor has been found. We've received a telegraph from the Coast Guard in Miami, quote, picked up blonde girl, brown eyes from small white raft, suffering exposure and shock, name Terry Joe Duperalt, was on Bluebell, end quote. A gasp and then excited cheers went up. Harvey exclaimed at the back of the room, oh my God. He looked down at the floor for a moment, then looked up again and said, isn't that wonderful? He walked to the back of the room without a word and towards the door. Lieutenant Murdoch asked Harvey if he didn't want to stay to hear the rest of the testimony, as was his right. Harvey looked at him briefly, shook his head, and exited. <music> Terry Joe floated away from the wreckage in the small cork boat. She was in the Gulf Channel between the Bahamas and Florida, Through the dark, she could see ships' lights in the distance. At first, she attempted to paddle towards them, but she soon realized the distance was too great to make any headway. She was terrified that Captain Harvey would find her that first night at sea. She got no sleep at all. When the sun came up, it beat relentlessly over her. She was terribly thirsty and had no fresh water to drink. Her skin began to burn from the sun and her lips cracked from dehydration the sea winds kept carrying her further away from the land that she spied the first morning she was adrift. If she was not found soon, she would be carried out into the North Atlantic Ocean. If that happened, it would be nearly impossible odds for such a small craft to be spotted by rescuers in the vast open ocean. When the winds grew stronger and the waves grew larger, Terry Jo was very aware that one good toss of the raft could throw her into the sea. She tried to stay awake even through her exhaustion. Once she fell asleep, and dreamt she was on land, only to wake up and find herself outside of the raft submerged in the dark waves. She barely slept after that terrifying incident. Planes flew overhead, but most were too high up to spot such a tiny craft. Two days and nights passed with no relief for Terry Jo. Her muscles began to cramp from dehydration. Fish nibbled through the rope webbing when she tried to lay to rest her limbs inside the boat. She saw shark fins and knew that the predators were circling just yards away. The Coast Guard searched for survivors for 80 hours. They finally called off the operation, believing the chance to find anyone alive at that point was nearly impossible. On the morning of Thursday, November 16th, a sailor aboard the freighter Captain Theo saw a white raft bobbing in a channel about 120 miles northeast of Miami. A small figure was sitting on it. The sailor almost missed seeing the raft due to the white caps on the waves surrounding it. But the girl's blonde hair, now bleached white from the sun and white blouse, caught his attention. As the ship drew closer, the little girl waved. She was so weak she was barely able to hold her arm above her head for a few seconds. A careful rescue operation was conducted by the Greek sailors. They had to be careful not to tip the raft over. They doubted the child had the strength to keep herself above the waves if that happened. They also wanted to avoid the danger posed by sharks seen circling the raft. When they got the little girl on board, she was too weak to stand. She was carried to a spare cabin and placed in a bunk. Her eyes stared vacantly and she wasn't able to speak. They had no idea what the poor waif must have gone through or how she had survived in the ocean alone. Her skin was badly sunburned and her lips were swollen and split. They asked her name but got no response. They gave her sips of water and orange juice and wiped her salty face and arms with damp towels. They put Vaseline on her cracked lips. Some of the sailors were afraid she was too far gone to save and said prayers over her with tears in their eyes. Finally, she was able to whisper hoarsely one word, Bluebell. The captain gently prodded her for more, hoping to get more information to provide to the Coast Guard. Did she have relatives anywhere, he asked? She answered, yes, Green Bay. Finally, she was able to whisper her name, Terry Joe Duparal. Before she fell into an exhausted sleep. By the time of the Coast Guard hearing in Miami, investigators had learned Julian Harvey's history of insurance claims. They found payouts to Harvey for at least two boat wrecks. In addition, there was a suspicious death of his third wife and her mother. Harvey had collected on his wife's life insurance policy as well. When they learned that Terry Joe Duperalt had been found alive and was on her way to a Miami hospital, they requested that police guards be placed outside of her hospital room. They now had to wonder if Julian Harvey had caused the wreck of the Bluebell himself, causing the death of his wife, Mary Dean. They learned that he'd recently taken out a large policy on his new bride's life, and their suspicions grew. If he did have a hand in the tragedy, the only surviving passenger, Terry Joe, might not be safe, they speculated. That was if she survived. Soon after being admitted to the hospital, Terry Joe fell into a coma. Dehydration had damaged her kidney function, and her heartbeat was fast and erratic. She was still not out of the woods, as there was a danger of massive organ failure, pneumonia, or an irregular heartbeat. But the little girl whom the media had learned about and dubbed the Sea Wave pulled through, emerging from the coma on the second day. By the third day, she was strong enough to eat solid food, and her appetite proved she was on the mend. The crew of the Captain Theo was so overjoyed to hear the news that they took up a collection amongst themselves to send her gifts. She received a package containing an expensive doll, clothes, and other trinkets they thought a little girl would like. Terry Jo had survived a wreck at sea and three and a half days alone adrift on the ocean. Once she was strong enough to answer questions about what had happened on the Bluebell, investigators would learn that she'd also survived a mass murder. Terry Jo remembered the events of the night of November 12, 1961, in vivid detail, starting from the time she awoke upon hearing her brother's screams. Most of what she told investigators directly contradicted Julian Harvey's account. Captain Barber asked her about the broken mainmast and if she'd seen a tangle of cables and wires the way Harvey had described. She said that there was no mess on deck and that she hadn't seen a broken mast. Investigators concluded that the mizzen mast could also not have been damaged, as Harvey claimed. Terry Jo said she was able to see the dinghy and raft floating at the side of the boat because they had been illuminated by the lights on the top of the mizzen mast. The lights could not have been working if the mizzenmast was damaged the way Harvey described. She also said she'd neither seen nor smelled a fire. But the most shocking portion of Terry Jo's story was when she revealed that she'd seen the dead bodies of both her mother, Jean, and her brother, Brian, lying in a pool of blood. She couldn't tell how they'd been killed, but she assured investigators she was sure they hadn't died as the result of a fallen mast or a fire. Investigators were, of course, stunned upon hearing this news. They wanted to be sure the child's imagination hadn't run away with her or that her ordeal on the sea hadn't distorted her recollection. They asked her several times in different ways to describe what she had witnessed. She told the same story consistently each time she was questioned. Investigators soon became convinced that she was telling the truth. Later, when they released the full report of their findings, Coast Guard investigators would state that, quote, the fact that Harvey was the sole beneficiary of his wife's insurance policy and that he was sorely in need of funds must be considered as motives, end quote. Their theory of the crime was that Harvey had planned to do away with his wife during their seven-day voyage to the Bahamas with the Duperalts. He may have planned to incapacitate her and throw her overboard before returning to Fort Lauderdale. He could claim she'd fallen overboard sometime during the night, a simple, if tragic, accident. However, either Dr. Duperalt, his wife, or both may have heard or seen something which caused Harvey to attack them as well. Because Terry Joe had heard Brian call out for his father— it's my guess that Dr. Duperalt was already dead by that time. Mrs. Duperalt and Brian were attacked next. Most likely, all three were stabbed to death, since Terry Joe recalled seeing a knife on the deck, but had not heard any gunshots. There had been a gun and a rifle on board the Bluebell. The rifle belonged to Dr. Duperalt, who brought it along for hunting. Little Renee was probably thrown overboard as the autopsy concluded that she drowned. Julian must have found her body floating near the wreckage and brought it into the raft to prove to rescuers his story about a tragic shipwreck. And why did Terry Joe survive? Her chilling description of Harvey opening the cabin door, staring at her, but leaving her alone, points to a couple of theories. One, he had planned to kill Terry Jo too, eliminating the only living witness, but had lost his nerve. Or two, he ran out of time as the boat was rapidly filling with water, and believed that Terry Joe would drown anyway. But after she got out of the cabin and reached the deck, why did Harvey hand Terry Joe the rope to the dinghy? I don't believe he was trying to save her. He just might not have been thinking clearly, or he was afraid he would be unable to get into the dinghy before it floated away from the ship. Maybe he was just using Terry Joe as an anchor to keep it from drifting while he saved himself. As soon as Harvey heard that Terry Joe had survived, he knew the jig was up. He checked himself into a hotel two miles away from the Coast Guard headquarters, under the name John Monroe. Harvey unpacked photos of his son Lance and his wife Mary Dean and propped them up on the toilet tank. He sat on the floor of the bathroom with his back against the door and slit his arms, wrists, and throat. The following day, a hotel maid found the 44-year-old dead. He left behind a suicide note addressed to his friend James Boozer. He requested to be buried at sea and asked his friend to adopt his son Lance. Lance was enrolled as a student at a Miami military academy. Documents found among Harvey's possessions included the life insurance policy taken out on his wife, in which he was the sole beneficiary. If he had succeeded in his terrible plan, he would have collected $40,000. His suicide note made no mention of the bluebell. Harvey simply wrote, I am tired, nervous, and can't take it anymore. A 350,000 damage suit was filed against the Bluebell's owner, Harold Pegg. Julian Harvey did not have the required license to serve as skipper of the Bluebell. Terry Joe Duperalt recovered physically from her nightmare at sea and was adopted by her aunt and uncle in Green Bay, Wisconsin. They raised her with their three sons who considered Terry Joe their sister. Her sister, Renee, was buried in a cemetery nearby. Her parents' bodies, as well as that of her brother, were never recovered. The Coast Guard estimates that the wreckage of the Bluebell could be sitting as deep as a mile under the sea, making finding any trace of the wreckage nearly impossible in the 1960s. Terry's aunt, uncle, and extended family had a strict policy against speaking to reporters. It was their way of protecting Terry Jo and the memories of Arthur, Jean, Renee, and Brian. No one in the family spoke of the tragedy or the deaths of Terry Jo's family. As a result, Terry Jo grew up with the grief and pain bottled up inside of her. No one knew that for many years, Terry Jo believed her father may still be alive. She had seen her mother and brother's bodies and buried her little sister. But she convinced herself that her father, her hero, had survived. Perhaps he had amnesia and one day would recover his memory and come and find her, she told herself. It was the last hope the little girl had to cling to the family she loved. Terry Jo struggled with the trauma she'd experienced and the pain she didn't feel free to express. She enrolled in college and dropped out, then bounced around the country, traveled abroad, and married and divorced at a young age. She had three children, two daughters, and a son she named Brian after her brother. She married her fourth husband, Ron Fassbender, in 1995, and they made their home in Wisconsin near Lake Michigan. In 2010, her memoir titled Alone was published. In it, she describes her ordeal for the first time in detail. Even though in her head, Terry Jo, who now goes by Terry, knows it is not possible that her father is alive. In her heart, she still dreams of seeing him again one day. Although her worst days on earth were spent on the ocean, Terry says she is still drawn to the water. When she's watching the waves of Lake Michigan from the shore, it brings back memories of her happiest days playing on the beach with Brian and Renee, fishing with her father, collecting seashells with her mother. It's a wonderful feeling, but at times melancholy. I feel closer to them there. All in all, it is a sweet sadness, Terry writes. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Next week, we'll have another tale of incredible survival when a courageous young woman escapes the clutches of serial killers. Make sure you're subscribed to or follow Once Upon a Crime so you don't miss an episode. Once Upon a Crime is written and produced by me, Esther Sanchez Ludlow. My co-producer is Lorena Garcia. Research for this episode was provided by Emma Battaglia. Until next time, be good to one another.